Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, Nick and I sit down with Ben Rabidou. And if you're not familiar with Ben Rabidou, you should be, especially if you like anything to do with housing, property prices, real estate investing, the macroeconomic environment here in Canada, interest rate, debt levels, the whole bit. And we know if you're listening to this, you are likely interested in that kind of stuff. Ben is one of the few Canadians who extracts the data really well. It is difficult to get Canadian data. If you've been following us for any, any length of time, you know sometimes we reference American data. And that's for a couple of reasons. First, it's really easy to get the American data compared to the Canadian data. And second, Canada just tends to follow America and a lot of what it does around the macroeconomic decisions that we make here in this particular country around our monetary policy and our fiscal policy and the whole bit. But Ben does a real good job of extracting the Canadian specific data and offering his opinions on it. He shares a, a lot of wonderful charts on it and he kind of just weaves through the nuance of the data in a really well thought out manner. So on this particular episode, we chat with him and get his opinions on what is going on in the Canadian real estate market, what's going on with interest rates and debt levels, and where are we headed? I really think you're going to enjoy this particular chat. Actually, on his Twitter profile he, here, he's got a great bio. It says he's a full-time Canadian housing macro and credit ninja. I love that. A part-time aspiring fishing pro. And he is the founder of North Cove Advisors and Edge Realty Analytics. So you're really going to enjoy this chat. And if you are listening to this and you like this kind of information, something we put out here is on our YouTube channel, we will discuss our own opinions on this data and what we're thinking around the real estate market and, and uh, interest rates and, the de and debt and the whole bit. You can check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash rockstar inner circle. That's www.youtube.com forward slash rockstar inner circle. And one of the more current ones is Anthony Molinero on our team put together a video using some of the latest technology available to real estate investors here in Canada. And what it does is it kind of lays out, or sorry, he lays out how to screen tenants using this technology. And it's really astonishing how fast you can automate the process of screening tenants for any of your rental properties. This stuff did not exist when Nick and I were doing it. When we were filling our own properties, we had blank pieces of paper and a pen. We would write down voicemail messages on the paper. I'd put a little check mark next to everyone if I had called them back. And if I didn't get through to them, I would try three times and my little check marks would indicate how many times I had called. Well, apparently that is very old fashioned. And now with this new technology, you can screen tenants, get data scores, um, get a verified payroll and employment and the whole bit. And that is one of the very latest YouTube videos that we have on our channel available at youtube.com forward slash rockstar in our circle. Enough with this intro. Let's get on this. Let's get by. Let me make it to the end here. I can barely do it. Let's get on with the show with Ben Rabidou. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are live with Ben Rabidou. See how I'm saying the last name proper? Ben Rabidou. You nailed it. Yep. We got it. Yeah, I should be able to get that one. And uh, Nick and I are both here chatting with Ben. And the reason we're excited to talk with Ben is Ben speaks our language because Ben puts out information about the craziness and madness that is the Canadian housing market and economy. And we love it. So I think what you do, Ben, is you bring some clarity to what's going on in, uh, in the Canadian economy. So keep doing what you're doing. You're serving, serving us all very well. 
Well, thanks I appreciate for being that. Yeah, th- thanks for having me, guys. So give us a bit of a, your background. How did you get into doing, we just we were just talking a little bit before we started recording, but can you give us a bit of your story? How did you get to the point where you are sharing all this wonderful economic data? Yeah, it's a, a bit of a I don't, non-traditional path, I guess I took. I was um, teaching at Georgian College, actually. And this is going back 2011, 2012. And just as sort of a, um, a side project, for lack of a better word, I just started a blog where I was posting some thoughts on housing and the economy and consumer credit. And you have to remember that back then even, the access to the information is not what it is today, right? So for example, Statistics Canada today is wide open. Anybody can access it. But back then it was kind of institutional only. And um, my connections with the college gave me a lot of access to, to some data series that you couldn't otherwise get access to. Uh, and so, you know, I was just posting some stuff online, ended up with a, a pretty broad distribution. And it turned out when I looked at the distribution list, it was a lot of institutions, a lot of pension funds, mutual fund companies, some U.S. Uh, uh, investment manager, managers, and then through the course of time, ended up just getting requests for some consulting work and realized that this was sort of an underserved um, niche of the market and rolled it into a research offering for institutions and, and sort of uh, took off from them. So that was kind of 2012, spent a lot of time focusing on Canadian housing, household credit, with a lot of kind of, um, you know, taking the, the macroeconomic data and then trying to blend it with kind of observations from frontline contacts, right? And, uh, and then making that available to institutions. And so did that, continue to do that. And then just very recently have rolled out a sort of a, a parallel offering that is geared towards uh, real estate professionals, which I, I'm sure at some point we'll talk about as well. Yeah, I, I can't believe, I, I think Nick and I are kind of sometimes shocked that there's not more clarity when I'm able to pull up more um, information about the US economy than I yeah. am about the Canadian economy and specifically around what the Federal Reserve does there versus our Bank of Canada here. 100%. So one of the reasons I have a job at all is because Canadian data is so terrible. But even these guys that like, they have massive budgets to try to do this sort of research. And they just find it so hard to get the information they're actually looking for, right? So you're absolutely right. The data quality in Canada, unfortunately, really lags what they have in the U.S. And then the accessibility and the, the ease of use, for lack of a better word. I mean, the, the, some of the platforms that they have in the U.S. around some of the data, like the, the FRED system, which is the Federal Reserve data. I mean, it's so user-friendly and intuitive and you can pull up anything, right? And we just don't have that in Canada. So part of the reason that, that I, I have the distribution I have is because it's just way easier to pay somebody that knows that that data system than than to try to figure it out yourself. Why? So yeah, I agree completely. But why did you? What triggered you? in, I guess what would you say? 2011, 13? When, when did you start doing? Well, I started your... this firm in 2012, North Cove Advisors. Okay, but you were... I, I think I had the site maybe 2011 ish. Okay, so what triggered you to start that site? I'm just curious because 2011, this would be a few years after. Like, were you into this space at all in your past life prior to getting into it when 2008 kind of hit, like the financial crisis? Like, what what, what changed in 2011 that you're like, I'm going to start kind of commenting on some of this stuff going on? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I was. I've been interested in real estate and, and the economy kind of forever. It's been a passion of mine. Um, watched with great interest what happened stateside and, uh, and sort of wondered where the risks might be embedded here in Canada. And uh, just started doing structure, really, really do 
research to understand the structure and the plumbing of the Canadian mortgage market. And, and back then, you know, there were some serious concerns around, for example, um, CMHC and how far away from their kind of core mandate they'd strayed and, and the extent to which they were sort of propelling credit growth, but, but with this sort of sovereign blanket on it and what that, I mean, there's all sorts of these quirks now, you know, Canada was never like the U.S. in terms of underwriting. We all know that. Um, I mean, the U.S. was just Wild West, yeah, fraud yeah. everywhere. I mean, it was brutal, right? Uh, fog a mirror and you can get a mortgage. And yeah, exactly. our, our friends in the States were using that exactly. If you could fog a mirror, you're getting yeah. a mortgage. Yeah, it was crazy, right? And, and I mean, now we've got, you, you can watch the movie The Big Short. I mean, just none of that stuff was happening in Canada. But there were still some kind of idiosyncratic risks that were sort of embedded in the structure of the market that I wanted to explore a little more. And so I got into that, um, kind of went way down that rabbit hole and, uh, you know, was flagging some of these risks. Ultimately it ended up being that in Canada, we managed to, to sort of, uh, I don't know if de-risk is the right word, but they sort of unwound a lot of those really uh, convoluted credit structures around CMHC. They de-risked the CMHC's book. And there was never really any fallout for the housing market, which frankly surprised me. So I've been like in full disclosure, I mean, I've been fairly cautious around housing for a number of years uh, and have been quite wrong on it. And I'll tell you, you know, what, where, where things changed for me was kind of looking at it in 2019. I mean, I saw we kind of went through a bit of a mini kind of housing uh, cycle and call it 2016, 2017, where we saw prices run up in the GTA and then regulators came in and kind of curbed things. And then you saw in some of the areas of the 905, especially in the, the high-end single-family market, you saw prices come off fairly significantly in some areas, right? I mean, no, you know, York region, we saw prices kind of 20% peak trough for single-family, which is not an immaterial move, right? It was fairly significant, but you know, I watched that play out, and then, uh, and then I was kind of, you know, you're sort of sitting there waiting to see, well, how's this going to play out, and how's this going to develop? And then once 2019 hit, it became very clear that you know, the big story in Canada was just this persistent, stable decline in inventory levels across the country, right? And I know you guys have seen the chart. I mean, it's really stunning. It's like, you know, we're half of what we were in terms of available listings back in 2015, right? And it's, it's like 30-year lows. And it's just this consistent decline. And so when I saw that starting in 2019, you're kind of like, well, what am I fighting this for? Like, why am I cautious on this. I need to ring the bell here. And at that point, I was saying to my clients, like, look, I may have some concerns around the structure of the Canadian economy and how we've built the resiliency of the Canadian economy. But if we don't get more supply to this market, this thing's going to rip, like it's going to absolutely rip. And so that was the setup as we headed into COVID. And I think people don't realize that in early 2020, the market had tightened so dramatically that Every measure of supply-demand balance was signaling a tighter market than what we saw in 2016 and 2017, where regulators were very concerned, where you saw all these headlines about affordability crises, and, and we were way tighter than that. And prices weren't yet reflecting it. And so I was saying in 2019, like, look, prices are going to explode in 2020 if something doesn't change. Now, of course, something changed because we had COVID hit, right? And, and you had sort of this temporary reprieve where the market kind of moved sideways and whatever. Temporary freak for 30 days, a temporary that was panic. It. Let's face it. There was, was what is it. going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. And I was, you know, look, I was looking at it too thinking, geez, how does this not end badly? Well, right? I'll tell you uh, just on that point, because I want you to continue. We made a YouTube video and we shared supply data 
we basically said population growth has been so strong over the last decade and housing supply has been so short over the last decade. Nick, you brought up this point that we are short in the GTA Golden Horseshoe area of Canada. We think about 140,000 homes. Okay, well, I'll do you one better. I'll do you one okay, better. Okay. So if you look at the latest report I just put out, so the 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 edge I report. In, I have from it in May. front of yeah, I have it in front of me. Yes. Well, here I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Why don't you turn to it? We'll do this real time so you can you can reference the chart. I'm going to pull it up too here. So what I did is I looked at single family completions by decade, and then I looked at total population growth by decade. Yeah, that's a great. Yes, we were talking so about that what, chart yesterday. Yeah. So this is this is basically the same thing that that, that you did, but just expanding it to the national level. Are you and trying to say you did it a little bit better than our? <laughs> no, our, no, no. We're hey, very sophisticated, Ben. We are very sophisticated here. Okay. <laughs> we, we, you know what? You guys are hundred percent. You're totally right. You're directionally right. I think, but and you guys focus specifically on the GTA. So your numbers for the GTA may be absolutely right. I took never, a broader look. And we've never made a chart in our lives. We, we yeah, don't yeah, take we, the numbers <laughs> and share the numbers, but we don't put them yeah. into any charts. Yeah, like, yeah. So that's, so no, Nick, what, we did make the one chart, the destruction of the middle class, we did, income yeah. and housing. We made We're more. very we proud made, of that. We're, we're very, very <laughs> But sorry, man, keep going, keep going, keep going. Well, the point I was going to make is if you look at single family completions. So, so by decade, we were sort of adding through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, 2000s, almost every decade around 3 million single family completions. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's 3 million. Okay. Let me back up. I totally botched that. We're adding about a one point, call it 1.3 million single family completions. And we are adding 3 million to the population. Okay. And so through those decades, it was fairly consistently around one new single family completion for every kind of 2.4 people added to the population. Okay. That was the ratio. Then you get into the 2010s. And if you look at the decade, that ended in 2020, those ratios completely blow out. We see a steep decline in single family completions to, to barely just a little over a million, kind of less than 1.1 million. And population growth explodes to 4 million. So now all of a sudden the ratio blows out to kind of 3.7 people for every single family completion. And you go, well, that doesn't maybe, that, that alone doesn't tell you anything, but, but if you put it this way, okay, so I'll frame it differently. If we had built homes at the same ratio in the 2010s that we had in the 2000s, the 90s, the 1980s, and 1970s, we would have needed about 580,000 additional single-family homes built across the country to keep that ratio consistent. And so you're right. You know, the bottom line is you guys are absolutely right. The story that we're seeing right now is we are desperately short single-family inventory, and and that happened to coincide with this pandemic that induced tremendous demand for lower density and especially suburban living, right? And, and you can see that, you know, in all of the home sales data and the pricing data where you've got the smaller sort of metro suburban regions are the ones that are ex exploding in price. Um, so it was sort of the, a, a perfect storm of, you know, very strong demand that was then accelerated by the pandemic that, that happened to coincide with just this, this dramatic reduction in available inventory and consequently end up with where we are today. So a question that we've gotten uh, around that. So, so those, those were great charts. I, I hadn't looked at the Scotia report. Uh, what was that last week or a couple weeks ago when, when the Scotia report was released, but then you took it and put those together, which I hadn't seen that. So when I saw that on your report, I was like, wow. Yeah. That just looking at it, it was just, it just makes your eyes kind of bug out of your head a little bit. You're like, holy crap. But they, um, uh, one question that we, 
often get from people they're like well guys if, if the population like last year the population growth wasn't the same because of non-permanent yep. residents and things like that they're and and they're like so how i don't get it like how can this continue and based on the numbers that we saw and i guess similar to you so you might have a, a, i'm curious as to to your thoughts but i'm like yeah we're just catching up from the the supply demand how out of whack it was over the last Primarily, I guess for us, I mean, it seems like really in 2015 is when it started spiking because when they changed the immigration programs in 2014 and it started having the impact in 2015. So, but it really like we, we were using 10 year numbers, but it's, it's this last decade when those numbers got so far out of whack, it's like we didn't need the population growth last year and the market was still out of whack. So maybe yep. it comes a little bit more into, you know, into balance now, but if the population growth then goes back at the rate that it was, it's it's we're going to be up up the creek again a little a little bit right yeah i think you're right so the bottom line is um you need because there's been such a deficit in single family construction you're going to need an extended period of relatively weak demand to sort of build that back up and this is something that's really important for people to understand like you know i want to be clear I, i think the canadian economy is unhealthy in terms of how we've levered our growth off of real estate, real estate and consumption, right? And yeah, but 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 that's not going to be a story for this year, right? If uh, you know, if there's ever a, another housing cycle, and I suspect at some point in our lives we will see another housing cycle. We we gotta think we will, unless but, the government yeah. just keeps propping up everything forever. Forever, well, <laughs> you, you you do wonder. That's kind of what they've signaled, right? I mean, you know, you go through a once in a in a lifetime economic shock, and prices explode to the upside. It's like, well, what <laughs> dents this market then, right? But but my point is, you know. I'm not completely convinced that we've, you know, killed the concept of economic cycles for the rest of our lives. Um, but even if the wheels fell off right now, okay. So let's say that the economy suddenly fell apart, went into another major downturn, sales dried up, inventory started to build. You need to put context on it, right? Right now, nationally, we have less than two months of inventory of resale supply, right? Now that doesn't, again, that doesn't maybe mean anything for you, but picture a, a town where you've got, you know, 400 units, 400 homes currently listed for sale. And last month there were 200 sales. So you would take two months to clear that supply. That's the story nationally. And a, a, a balanced market, what we've seen traditionally is more around the kind of five, five and a half months of inventory. And so what that means is you need sales to fall and to stay down for a long time. And, or you need a, like a, major increase in supply to, to, to get us anywhere close to sense of balance. Not, and, and then you need to get much beyond that. Like prices nationally generally don't start falling until you're kind of seven, eight, nine, 10 months of inventory. And you're at two right now. So, so if you were to hold sales constant, you need to add like four or five times as much supply to this market to get to that point where you've got a real cycle. Right. And so that doesn't happen overnight. This is not the stock market. This is not, you know, Bitcoin or Dogecoin or where it's just like you wake up in the morning, it's down X percent. Right. This is a slow moving ship. And so this is not going to be a story for 2021. If there's going to be a cycle or any sort of a slowdown, it's a story for well beyond right now. So what would it, yeah, because this is what we're obsessed with. I mean, our family lived through 1990. I don't know if you've heard that from us, Ben, or not, but we barely survived 1990 as a family where our father was flipping three homes in Mississauga, making more money flipping homes than his his drywall company was making. Then he mm. got caught with one in Mississauga at $750,000, was going to flip it, bought it, bought it, by the way, off a guy who came out of the trailer who bought it. 
So he bought it paper, changing oh, wow. hands like an assigned. Yeah, just think about that. Bought it wow. from a guy coming out. Yeah, yeah. Bought it for seven hundred and fifty grand. Went down to four fifty in four months. Wow. We almost lost everything as a family. So, but that's the last big. So when people talk to me about 2017 or, you know, the, the yeah, it's not a real cycle. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, listen, listen. Yeah. 1990 was the last one I can really remember. Yeah. What would it take? Because everything Nick and I look at when we look at population growth, we yeah. look at students who are coming in here and we look at that almost as an alternate immigration path where students are coming in here legally, yep. but then getting status. And some students happen to have access to several million dollars to be able to buy property. So we yep. have this other thing that's, that you've documented really well, but I feel like the mainstream media doesn't really discuss. We have interest rates that I don't see mathematically how they can go up without the interest payments on our debt being so astronomical that our Absolutely. deficits will then explode, which then drive prices you yep. know, through the de devaluation of the currency. So when I look at population, housing supply, interest rates that can't go up, deficit spending that seems to go on forever, I, it's tough to picture a housing correction. The only one I've been able to come up with, Nick and I, is that if the banks have some sort of credit event where yeah. they freeze lending, that's the only that that to me is the yeah, primary right. primary one. What would it be for you? Because that that's what I've identified as like that's our number one threat. Banking no, you're absolutely crisis. right. That's so underappreciated. I I agree with that completely. So when we look at the U.S. The U.S. was such an anomaly in, in terms of how their housing decline played out because, I mean, house prices generally don't fall 30% in 18 months like they did in the U.S., right? Unless you get just a complete freeze in the credit system, right? Which is what we saw in the U.S. Now, I'll tell you why it's that particular scenario is very unlikely to happen in Canada. Okay. Okay, so... In the U.S., before there was any sort of like bailout or any sort of recapitalization of the banks, everybody has to get together in a room and discuss it. And they have to come to some sort of a consensus. And, and they fight tooth and nail and it takes months. And in, and in the meantime, housing's bleeding out and the economy's on the verge of collapsing, right? And eventually they come to some sort of conclusion and they recapitalize the banks and, and, and away they go. But the damage is done, right? Now, contrast that with Canada where you have CMHC, you have a crown corporation that answers to one person. So unilaterally, I want you to picture this. Let's say we enter into some sort of situation where there's a banking crisis in Canada. Unilaterally, the finance minister can call all the bankers into the room. And remember, there's only basically six of them, right? Where in the US, you're dealing with thousands, right? You call them all into, you can literally go around in a van and collect them all. And, and have a conversation. And the finance minister, without any sort of parliamentary discussion, can say, we're expanding the powers for CMHC. We will backstop all of the loans to prevent a, a financial crisis. And they can do that overnight. And we saw, we've seen them take those sorts of powers. We saw them, a lot of people don't realize that, that, that CMHC took some very dramatic steps in kind of 2008, 2009. We saw it again as well, a little bit in, in the early days of the, of the pandemic, where they had these you know, mortgage insurance purchase programs. And, and so bottom line is it's that sort of a financial liquidity event is much less likely in Canada, right? So I, but if they do that, they risk decimating the currency, which is a whole other can of worms because effectively what they're doing is they're, they're bringing the, the, the risk onto the sovereign balance sheet. 
But that's exactly what they do. And, and any, you look throughout history, any country, when there's a banking crisis, at the end of the day, the government steps in and bails them out, takes, takes the, the solvency onto their balance sheet, right? Uh, and that's what we would do here too. So to your question, like, well, what would it really take? Um, I mean, there's a number of things that, that could cause a cycle, but but you have to understand how it. Oh, let's hear. I'm, I'm right? excited to hear this. Yeah, lay this out. <laughs> let me lay this out. No, no. Okay, but what I want to what I want to be clear on is when we talk about a housing cycle in Canada, it's unlikely to be this very rapid decline in prices where you get like thirty percent in eighteen months of saw in the U.S. For exactly that reason, because to get those declines, you need liquidity to disappear, and so a cycle in Canada is much more likely to play out where it's like, kind of picture the early okay. Sort of set aside those early days of like 89 and 90 where you had a steep decline in prices, but then look at like from kind of early 90s over like the next five, six years. Prices kind of just like it was a slow, slow grind yeah. lower. It ended up being negative in real sort of inflation adjusted terms. You ended up losing kind of 10, 15% in inflation adjusted terms, but nominally prices kind of were grinding sideways to down a bit. And to me, that's a much more realistic scenario with how something might play out in Canada on a national scale at least. Um, but to get there, Again, you need a lot more supply, which it's hard to see at this point outside of maybe the apartment sector. Um, but I would tell you that you know, the economy is incredibly leveraged in Canada. I mean, a lot of people don't realize just how much leverage we have in the, the system across the entire economy. We're talking about, if you look at just all the various levels of government, plus the corporate sector, plus the household sector, you're like 350% of, of GDP, which is significantly higher than the US. I know a lot of people talk about the, they've got separate issues with unfunded liabilities that we don't have. But... But in terms of just looking at the debt outstanding, we're tremendously levered. And so any backup in rates, you know, I know people say, well, yeah, but households, they've sort of stress tested against higher rate. Yeah, fine. That's fine. I agree with you. If interest rates go up a few percent, households in general are fine, except that the economy itself, businesses are so levered, right? It affects them tremendously. And so you could see a scenario where if rates were to rise, it would have a huge issue. Now that gets back to your point though, does the bank can't let that happen? Or do they step in to, 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 to artificially press rates down? And that would I'm be calling, my bias. Because I'm calling their bluff. Because I agree with you. And I know what I just said is dangerous. I know what I just said is very dangerous. You can't base your own personal family's borrowing and, you know, and leverage by Tom saying he's calling the Bank of Canada's bluff. So I, I, I don't want anyone to hear that and say, oh, well, Tom said the rates are never going to go up. But in the back of my mind, I just want to share with everyone what I think, which is you guys aren't going to raise rates. I agree with you 100%. In fact, I would go so far as to say I think interest rates will be negative in real terms for years and years and years to come. And that's exactly what they want because you're, you're right. If you look at the leverage situation in Canada at every level, there's only two ways ultimately you get out of this, right? You either tighten your belt and we pay this down as, an, as the country right through through austerity and, and look and that's option number not, one man, don't don't make a right. joke you're, right. don't, you're now you're making jokes man. this, this is a <laughs> right. serious podcast okay <laughs> so there's option number one which of course is as, is as popular as a wet dog in an elevator okay the second option is sort of like the stealthy we'll just let inflation run a little hotter than interest rates and you slowly inflate away a lot of that debt and that's by far the easiest route it's sort of like you're robbing the, you know, the, the, the retirees and the people on fixed income, but you're rewarding the debtors at the lower end of the spectrum. You sort of rebalance wealth a little bit that way. And that's ultimately what they want. So I'm with you. I think interest rates are going to be negative in real terms for years to come. And every time they try to tick up, I think you'll see 
look, I think you're going to see before the end of this, this cycle, I think you'll see yield curve control. I think the Bank of Canada is going to come in and just artificially suppress interest rates. I think it'll be good for real assets. Um, and that's where we're at. I just I think it's a, it's a heck of a conundrum. And that's a very different view than I've had on housing in, in the past. In, in your world with the people you're speaking with, because in, in our world, that's like not many people are talking like that. Right. And it's, it's very, it's unusual for us, I think, to speak to Canadians who are looking at the market and trying to understand these things and, and understanding more Canadian trends, or at least I, I, Tom, we haven't come across very many people looking at it like that. And I'm just curious, like in your world of people that you're communicating with, is this a well-received message or something that they're aware of, or is this news to them? Because it seems like maybe recently people are kind of thinking more along these lines, but up until the last few months, it didn't just, or maybe let's say the last year or so, it didn't really, it didn't cross their minds at all. Well, that's a great question. I think what's happened is the pandemic has kind of just changed the way everybody thinks about everything, right? Um, the way people think about kind of the traditional ways that central banks operate, the way people think about kind of leverage and how we deal with that. Look, the rise in, in modern monetary theory uh, and the extent to which that's gained traction in political spheres, it just changes the way you have to think about all this stuff, right? Uh, and it's a different, it feels like we're in a different regime than we've seen before, both in terms of kind of monetary policy from the central banks, but also fiscal policy from, from, from the governments, right? Yeah. And I feel like for the first time in a long time, we're going to have both fiscal and monetary policy aligned, right? In the sense that you're going to have stimulative policy where the, the central banks are going to keep rates artificially low, but the government's going to spend like crazy to try to reinvigorate the economy. And, you know, there's a lot of fear if you go back to 2009, 2010, that the initial round of quantitative easing would be inflationary, right? And of course, you know, unprecedented, no one had ever seen it before. We didn't really know how this experiment was going to end and it could, will this re result in runaway inflation? And in a way it did, it, ran, it, it resulted in significant asset inflation. Um, but the difference in my mind is that you remember we had this whole Tea Party revolution in the US, right? Where people, yeah, they, they, they sort of ramped up spending to get people out of the financial crisis. And then as soon as there was a whiff of recovery, they were like, look, we need to curb spending today. And there was a huge backlash and, and they did, they ended up embarking on you know, a lot more belt tightening uh, than they probably otherwise would have. And I don't see that restraint this time around. I, what I see is people just being like, yeah, look, MMT, it's, yeah. it's you know, we're going to spend until we see inflation, right? And, and I think they're going to get it this time. We look at the, uh, the, the last round, so the 2008 to whenever, I guess it was when it was start tapering was what, 14, did it go until? Mm -hmm. Like all that yeah. stimulus? 2015, was it 15, 14, 15, 14, 15, yeah. something yeah. like that. They, um, like looking back on it, I'm like, oh my God, we've had, we've had MMT, we've had U UBI, like universal basic income, and that was it, but it, except it was for asset orders. Because basically yeah. at that time, if you owned like, I mean, I know there's one off stocks, but basically across the board, if you own financial assets or real assets, everything went up, you yeah. know, like, like in general, I'm like, oh my God. So we've, we've seen it. So we've seen this inflationary environment. And now, now that we've had more of the monetary policy recently that I, I saw the CBC uh, chart the other day that said from April to September, 2020 versus 2019, there was 20 billion in wages lost roughly. I, you know, it was a graph, so I couldn't see the number, yep. but in, in the, the amount of government money put in at the same time was about 80 billion. 
But yeah, I think you might have been referencing my chart. That's it. Oh, was it your chart? Yeah. Did you put that? C- was it a CIBC? Yeah. You- oh, okay. So it was probably. Well, no, it was my chart. I mean, I, I looked it up, but I, I, uh, I mean, that that stat was widely reported because it was so stunning. But, but you're right. What it was is that between Q1 and Q2 last year, during the lockdown period, we had a 20 billion reduction in in wages paid. And you're right. Government transfers to households were up about 70 billion. So one way to think about it is, for every one dollar in lost wages, the government transfers over three dollars to households, which is insane. Right? Okay, okay, perfect. So, okay, so I apologize. So maybe it was your chart, but no, it's good. yeah, so it's insane. But but now we're seeing, aren't we seeing the repercussions of this? Like, aren't we see? And I know people are like, well, I know core inflation. I know what that means, and it can be thrown out the window for as long as I, I care. But like, because we're seeing, like, look at lumber, and it's not just lumber. I know the lumber is a hot topic, but it's it's electrical wire, it's concrete, it's like it's raw everything. materials all across the board are jumping. Isn't this a direct? response to what was just pumped into the economy it seems the correlation is too closely linked for for us to dismiss it no yeah so there's i mean there's a, there's a lot happening right now i mean the, the economy right now is incredibly noisy right because you're you've got all the, the this weird situation where almost exactly a year ago we were teetering on the brink of a depression right and so now that we're like a year later and we're starting to kind of lap that period everything looks crazy because it's like you know, I was looking at, what was I looking at today? Oh, like new home sales in the GTA, right? Like new condo sales were up 600% year over year. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. is that like, what, what really is yeah, going on? Yeah, the year it's over like, year well, numbers are going to look funny for a little bit. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But so look, there's a lot of noise right now, but I'll tell you, there's a couple things happening simultaneously on the inflation front. The first is you're exactly right. You've got a lot of stimulus sitting in, in the economy, a lot of money has been created. You guys know I spend a lot of time looking at monetary aggregates. We track, you know, how much money is being created in various measures. And, you know, we look at something like the M2, which is kind of a broader measure of money, almost 50 year highs, right? Incredible. So you're right. You can look at the cash sitting on household balance sheets. I was looking at just yesterday and there's about an extra $115 billion just sitting in checking accounts. For households relative to pre-pandemic trends, yeah, so you got like a so. Yeah, I was just gonna say we hadn't seen that. I think that that those numbers until we saw it from you. You had posted it someplace at one point in time, and I, we shared. I shared it with Tom. Like, Tom, look at this! Holy yeah. crap! Like I didn't well, see that, that number. That's before. rocket fuel, man. You think I stare about at that, that chart get, from you, Ben. Regular for the economy. Yeah, I stare. Yeah. I have it right in front of me right now. I stare at that chart from you regularly. The personal checkable deposits at charter banks and your latest report, because I think the previous report was a little lower. The latest report says that you, you, you know, if you kind of extrapolated it out, we should have had about $325 million, it looks like. Billion. On hand. Sorry, yeah. billion. Sorry, it's in yeah. million. Sorry, $325 billion. But we have right now about 425 or so billion yeah. dollars, which is $100 billion in excess of where you think we would have normally had just sitting in people's bank accounts. Yeah, and that ready, changed. Ready so so even since I wrote that, yeah, 100%, okay. even since I wrote that, those numbers keep spiking. So now we're up to, by my estimate, 115 billion. And that's just, okay, so now you think about what that means. You've got all this cash just sitting there. People can't spend. They want to spend, okay? So that's the demand side of the equation. On the supply side, right, it, as Nick said, like you've got all these supply disruptions related to COVID, right? Lumber, uh, I mean, I mean, just about any basic material. In fact, Okay, if you guys, I mean, I, I've highlighted this, you guys have seen it, but like, if you look at, for example, the raw material price index, so this is like the, 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 the commodities that are being bought by factories to build stuff, right? Up 
almost 40% year over year. It's the highest we've seen in 40 years. Okay. So that's the input cost going in. So you've got a supply issue on one side. You've got what's about to be a huge boom in demand on the other side. And it's very difficult to see how that doesn't end up being inflationary. Now, one of the things that, that you'll hear from the central bank is they're saying, yes, inflation's come. We're going to let it run a little harder than we normally would because we believe this is going to be transitory. We think that, in other words, their, their, their case is, yes, when the economy reopens, there's going to be a surge in demand, but there will also be a surge in supply. In their case is, yeah, like people are going to want to buy stuff, but guess what? All the factories are going to be reopened because COVID's behind us. And look, uh, I think they're wrong. I'll just say I think they're wrong on that because they're, what, they're, what they're arguing is that all of this inflation is just related to base effects. It's related to exactly what we are talking about where you're comparing it to this crazy period a year ago. But where they're wrong is if you look at last month, core inflation, and I know you just said you hate that measure, but, but, but this is what the bank looks at. Core inflation posted the strongest one-month gain in 40 years. So that's not related to 2020. That's related to the previous month this year, right? So you're now starting to see it. And when you look at some of the surveys, like um, the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses, CFIB has this great monthly survey where they pull a bunch of business owners and they're like, how much do you expect to raise your prices this year, right? And it's at the highest level we've seen in 10 years, the expectations for rising, raising prices. And 40% of those respondents are expecting to raise prices more than 5%, right? Compared to like, you know, normally it's like 10%. So all of these signals are there in the economy that prices are gonna start rising. So then the next question is, well, will they be able to pass those, those prices on to consumers, right? And my point is absolutely they will because look at how much cash these consumers are sitting on. They have the ability to absorb those, those prices. And I think they're going to be willing to do it because everyone's eager to spend. So I, and as far as I'm concerned, the groundwork is there for um, an inflation scare later this year. And we'll see how it plays out. But I'm with you guys. I think, I think we've sown the seeds for a few years of above trend inflation. You know what we laugh about with the Bank of Canada because they, they you know, they'll come out and say, oh, inflationary, the inflation is transitory or, you know, uh, be, they'll always adjust their statements a little bit about interest rates. Like, oh, you know, be careful, guys. Like we heard about rising interest rates since 2010. Sure. Right. And and I guess Tom and I are convinced we're just convinced that they have to talk up to the markets like that. Otherwise, what do they do? Because they can't say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know inflation is a real concern of ours. It's going to be a problem because then it creates it kind of like creates this other issue. Or, you know what, guys? Yeah, we're kind of screwed here. We're going to leave rates low for the next 10 years or, you know, yeah. we'll have to buy the yield curve control and stuff now. Because then it just the problem just kind of amp gets amplified after that. So we look at each other. We're like, they're screwed. Like they have to talk to the market like this. I guess we're giving them the benefit of the doubt that they must know that what's going on you'd hope that they're smarter than they're letting on don't yeah you? <laughs> it's funny though like it's funny you say that if you go back to october of last year you had tiff macklin was up there saying i mean he literally said this he was like if you're a consumer and, or a business and you are thinking about borrowing then you can rest assured that interest rates are going to stay low for a long time like he's literally out there that may have been a little before october but it was it was like in 2020 mid 2020 he's like you can rest assured and he's trying to instill confidence in people. Yeah. And then you fast forward just a few months and it's like they're caught off guard and, and the economy is maybe a little stronger than they expected. And now all of a sudden they're trying to walk it all back. They're like, well, you know, maybe you guys should be careful with the borrowing and we're concerned about financial stability. And you're like, man, this is what you told people to do. <laughs> 
right? This is from you. But I'll tell you what, what I think is interesting is, you know, when you look at like the construction of CPI, right? This consumer price index, it's so bizarre because, you know, you're looking at it going, okay, according to CPI, prices are only going up 2%. And I know there's all sorts of nuances around that. I know it's a valid point. People are like, you know, look, the phone in your pocket, if you had tried to buy all the accessories on your phone 20 years ago from a Radio Shack and you would have had to buy, you know, a camcorder and an audio recorder, it would have been $10,000, right? In, in, 20, in 20, 2000 money, right? And so, you know, in that sense, like, yeah, you could argue that that inflation or, or that technology is deflationary. Okay, fine, I get that. But dude, look at house prices. <laughs> like just look at house prices and then look at, look at the, the shelter component within the CPI. And what's interesting to me is a big part of the shelter component is the mortgage interest cost, okay? So now think about what this means if you're the Bank of Canada. As you cut interest rates, the cost of the mortgage goes down, which pushes CPI down. When you try to raise rates, all of a sudden now the mortgage interest cost component of CPI goes up and it pushes inflation up. You create the inflation that you're trying to prevent through the way that you're measuring inflation. Like it's such a strange system. Does that, does that make sense to you guys? It's like- It makes perfect <laughs> sense. Thank you for articulating that, Ben. Yeah, I feel like applauding right now. Yes, it makes perfect sense. It's absolutely ludicrous. So it's with everything crazy. you're saying then, do you expect, because right now it's been fascinating to see M2, you posted a great chart. I think it was 19.9% that M2 had got, 19 point something, I, I recall it's you saying. It's up a lot. Yeah, so, yeah 19-20%. M2 yeah. is up. Velocity of money, way down. I tend yes. to look at uh, the St. Louis Federal Reserve's data on velocity of money, and I just extrapolate that to Canada. So it's a little crude, but I'm like, okay, whatever's happening there is likely happening yep. here. Our velocity is way down. And when we looked at real estate prices, we took an interesting stat. Treb published year-over-year -year data from March 2020 to March 2021 saying real estate prices on average, which I know averages are not the best way to look at a real estate market, but on average in Treb, they were up 21%. So M2 had gone up about 20%. Real estate prices had gone up 21%. So we were telling everyone, listen, did real estate prices really go up? I know we sound crazy when we say that. Or as a percentage against the currency base of the economy, did they just stay flat? Yeah, that's when a, I when I say that to you, yeah, yeah. When I say that to you, yeah, great. I'm glad it's a tricky one. When I say that to you, what what goes through your head? Yeah, I think there's times where, I mean, that's, look, I, I'll pull up, I could probably throw together a chart just looking at host price increase versus M2 over time. Um, I don't know that the correlation is normally as clean as that. Uh, oh, I know. And I think that's why I use that for illustrative purposes. Yeah. And I use the average and I was, I was being a little purposeful in doing that, just trying to articulate the point that we can have velocity of money coming down. Yeah. Velocity of money more globally, if M2 is going up in the United States, in England, in Japan, in Canada, in Me Mexico, in Brazil, all yeah. around the world, are we witnessing a, an, a, and I guess you, I guess I anticipate you to say velocity of money is going to turn because we're sitting on all this money in the bank accounts. Yeah. Economy opens and velocity is going to come spiking up. That's which exactly what I expect. Yeah. So, so, but if I layer in devaluation of the currency globally, where it's a little mm -hmm. sneaky in that regard, because then it's hard to measure things against other countries because everybody's devaluing. But if we mm -hmm. have this mass currency increase and velocity potentially increase this fall, what are we going to see in this country? 
Well, that's a good question. So you'll have, uh, well, if that's the scenario, then you've got to assume it's good for real assets, right? If you're, if you're getting rising inflation, because my, my argument would be if you do see velocity pick up significantly, which I expect, right? So I don't, I don't know how much your listeners follow these sorts of data points, but velocity money, the, the concept there, and it's an important one to understand. It's like the fact that you've got all this new money creation in itself is not inflationary, right? And so I often use the case or use the argument that like, okay, imagine the Bank of Canada mints a trillion loonies, right? And then they bury them in the ground. Like, does that create inflation? Like, well, obviously not, right? They're buried in the ground somewhere. Like it has really affected the economy. But you take that money and you hand it out to people and you let them spend it. Now you've got a different scenario. And so what happened throughout the pandemic is, of course, people just couldn't spend their money, right? You ended up, you ended up with the velocity collapsing because people were locked up. And so you know, velocity is just a measure of how much money trades hands in the economy. And so it's that concept of taking that trillion dollars out of the ground and start spending it, right? And, uh, and so you know, if we see an uptick in velocity this year, which I fully expect as the economy has the potential to absolutely be quite inflationary. So if that's the backdrop, and, and you're right, I do think governments around the world are trying to devalue their currencies for, because they're all in the same boat. They all want to, nobody wants to actually pay off debt by doing hard work. They all want to inflate it away. And so you're right. I do think you've got a scenario where that's going to continue to happen. You have to think it's good for, for real assets. I mean, it gets back to, to what I said earlier. I think real interest rates are going to be negative. I think you'll be able to get mortgage rates at under the rate of inflation for the next couple of years, which is almost unheard of. And if that's right, it's really difficult to see anything other than a sustained upward pressure on prices until that changes. Where, where do you, this is like fascinating to me. Like, I, I just love this, the stuff you put together, Ben. So where are we headed as a population then? If I extrapolate out 10 years from today and hard assets are going to benefit, incomes don't seem, I guess, I, I guess I'd like your opinion on incomes next then, because if hard assets are going to continue to appreciate, I guess the question we get a lot from different investors here in Canada mm -hmm. is that, well, Tom, Nick, hard assets are going to benefit, but let's face it, no one's going to continue to qualify to buy properties because incomes aren't keeping pace. My answer has, or Nick, I think we're similar on this. I'm like, I think the government's going to want that to happen. So don't be surprised if we go through a couple of years of the government talking down, maybe real estate increasing a stress test. But at a certain point, if hard assets benefit because of what you're saying, velocity of money and things kind of keep moving, I'm wondering if the government changes amortization periods for Canadians and says, you know what, Canada, and I know this sounds absurd right now, Ben, but uh, yeah, Absolutely you could do 35 year amortizations. You could do 40 yeah. year amortizations. You could yeah. do 50 year amortizations because we want Canadians to own a home and it's every Canadian's right to own a home. And that's what we're doing for you Canadians. Well, as a political, no, that's a good point. Uh, yep. like, like if you're running an election campaign, and you're trying to appeal to the, the the middle class, and you're you know you're saying that. I mean, it's a popular thing. But if you if you take in the potential for for lower interest rates, right? Which I, I know they're already low already, but there is room. So and then you take into the account of those, and we are seeing some wage inflation too. 
we're starting to see with some people that we know, we're starting to see some pressure on, on wages and, 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 and things like that um, in, in different uh, sectors, primarily the technology sector in Toronto and stuff like that. So we, at least the people we know, we're seeing some of that. But yeah, a, a combination of those three things feels like it can, it can give them room to, to kind of continue a little bit. Yeah, so a couple thoughts on that. First on wages. The, the wage discussion is super important because you really can't, you can't have a lot of sustained inflation without it kind of having a feedback mechanism back into wages, right? So you, back in the 70s, when you had that crazy inflation cycle, you had what they called this wage spiral, or it's like prices were rising. And so therefore people demanded more wages. You had very strong unions and they got these, these you know, cost of living increases and then the cost of living, it just and it kind of spiraled upwards. And so the argument you hear from people is like, to your point, it's like, well, where's the wage growth? And what I see when I look at the data is actually there are signs that wage growth is building, right? Wage pressures are building. So for example, if you look at that CFIB data that I, I referenced, which I think is a, a great data set for seeing like, well, what's actually happening with small business owners. So small business owners, this is a, a bit of an interesting stat. When uh, you've got about almost 40% of small business owners are already reporting a shortage of skilled workers, okay? Now, normally, even in like a, like a fully recovered kind of functioning economy, it's like 30%. Okay, so we're like, we're above normal levels in terms of people reporting shortages of work. Okay, that's the first thing. Yesterday, we had the, the, the payroll data that came out um, for March. And what it showed was that job vacancies had spiked. So you've got all these employers trying to find work, trying to find workers. They can't find those workers, they're reporting a shortage, but yet their expected wage increase in the next year is only 1.7%, mm. right? So you're like, well, buddy, that's not going to work. If you want workers, you're going to have to pay them more, right? And so, you know, that's coming. I absolutely think we're going to see wages start to come and that, that's going to feed back into this inflation dynamic. Okay. So that's, that's one thing. Now, the broader question is, all right, what's going to happen with housing policy broadly in Canada? Look, it's very simple. 50% of our GDP growth in the last three years has come from residential investment. And what residential investment means is building residential homes, renovating those homes, and selling them to each other. That's been half of our GDP growth, right? Now, that doesn't even get into things like consumption, right? Consumption is right now, so household consumption is just about a record share of GDP. Well, housing drives that immensely right? Through travel channels. One is directly. It's like people are obviously, you know, if you look at the chart that I've sent on um, building material sales, building material and home garden sales, I mean, it's insane. It just looks like a hockey stick, right? But then the other thing is people spend more when they feel wealthier, right? It's this wealth effect spending, and it's very powerful as it relates to housing, right? If you've owned a single family home in Canada in the past year, you're $180,000 richer than you were a year ago on average, which is a huge amount. Now you think, what's that going to do to people's psyche? If you're $180,000 richer, you're much more inclined to, to, to spend that money or pull some out and you know, renovate or go on a vacation or whatever it might be. The feds fully understand this. Okay? What they desperately want is business investment to come back. People start investing in things that are going to make the, the, the country more productive. We don't have that right now. Until that changes, they can't kill this housing golden goose because there's nothing to replace it. Right. And so this has been this was my point when I was talking to clients in, in, in uh, early 2020, as this was all unfolding. It's like, 
man, you just have to understand what's driving this economy right now. It is housing. And, and for that reason, it's untouchable, right? And so on the amortization question, like there's a lot of countries in Europe that have much, much longer amortization than, than we do. I mean, the standard amortization in the US is 30 years, right? And that's fixed. You get to fix your mortgage over 30 years and amortize it over 30. I mean, it's crazy, right? And in Canada, if you're a first-time buyer, you're stuck at 25 years if you're insuring it, right? So look, you can make a, a, a compelling argument that 25-year amortization caps are maybe you know, conservative by global standards and there's room to, to, to loosen them. I, I mean, I don't know, like, you don't have to love the policy to recognize where policymakers are probably going to go. And I agree with you. It's if, if we continue to see affordability eroded, it's going to be awfully tempting to take that route, right? To keep things going. And what's the alternative right now? Housing is the economy. And especially we were there before, like they were up to 40 year mortgages yeah. insured. Um, when was that now? Was that 2008? Yeah. No, yeah. Well, they got rid of the 40 years, I think, in 2008, 2009. Like, I think after things kind of blew up in the States, I think they started. They yeah, they started around then. Back. And, but right. it was still like 35 years for a bunch of years. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, you're right. And then so, they yeah. slowly, progressively tightened it. Yeah, so so it's not like it's 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 unheard of. It's It's no. been here, you know, so it can definitely change. It's going to yeah. be, it's... it's it's interesting. Yeah, I want to Ben. I want just want to ask where you think now, bringing all of this home over the next few years. What, what, just if there's some sort of summary you can give us, and and maybe while you're thinking of that, I just just want to share that sometimes I think Nick and I feel like we're in a weird spot because we disagree with so much of the monetary policy and the fiscal policy of what is occurring here in Canada, but because we believe we understand it. We have been engaged in a small in real, way. We don't. We don't think in a small way. Yeah, yeah, in a small way. We've been engaged in the real estate market because that has been our average person's way of front running a lot of the you know silliness that we think, and that's my personal opinion of of what's been happening. And it's and, it's strange. And, just it, to clarify, Tom, sorry, and not from a speculation standpoint. Either. No, like, long term buying. Want, you know, yes. we still want cash flow and stuff so that, of, that offsets any downturns or whatever. But play the long game, yep. be yeah, smart. Yeah, yeah don't buy a, a condo thinking you're going to double. And um, yeah, play the yeah. long game. Yeah. Uh, actually, people have accused us in the real estate world of being too conservative, you know, because we always try to look for cash flowing properties and we'll take people out of Toronto out to Kitchener and Guelph and London and, you know, yep. kind of St. Catharines, Niagara and, you know, all these different areas, Peterborough area and that kind of stuff. But it's left us in a weird situation because we are helping people what we think is doing the right thing by buying assets and holding assets. But at the same time, we think over the next 10 years, people who own assets might be slightly vilified. And it's starting now. 100%. And it's left us in a weird position, Ben, because we're trying to help Canadians with their own personal family sidestep some of these policies by owning assets. But by the very act of them owning assets, we feel over the next few years, and this is what we've been preparing investors for, that you will be vilified. Like mm -hmm. you will be, oh, you own property, you're part of the problem, you're an asset owner, we'll tax you forever, and you're part of the problem. So it's this strange situation that we find ourselves in, that we feel like we're doing it for all the right reasons to help Canadians kind of build asset bases. Because, But we also know that, that by that very act, those people have to be prepared to be somewhat attacked 
It's yep. so strange. It's left us in this conundrum. And, I, and, and I'm not looking to you to solve that conundrum because we still believe in what we're doing. Yep. But I find, I find ourselves sometimes defending it because people will say, well, you guys are realtors. You think prices are going up and real estate's number one. We're like, no, 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 you don't understand. We don't think real estate just goes up. We are looking at the data, data like the stuff that you present, Ben. And because of that data, we think this is the right move. Right. And so, again, I'm not asking you to solve yeah, that. Listen, hey, look, look, first off, congratulations on making that call because you, you've absolutely nailed it. Right. I mean, real estate has been phenomenal in especially the last five years right here in Canada. Yeah, and, even more so than we could have ever expected, Ben, to be fair, even more so. Yeah, than we well, listen, could've. I mean, I was on the other side of that bet. I mean, I was yeah, looking yeah. at it thinking, <laughs> geez, this doesn't look healthy. Right. And and uh, and so, you know, good on you guys for getting that call right where I got it wrong. Um, you don't have to love, you don't have to love the rules of the game, but you do have to understand what they are. Right. And, and, and you are right. The, the, we've created a, a situation right now that I think in at least the near term is going to continue to sort of compound wealth inequality in Canada, right? The people who own assets are going to continue to do well. The people who don't, unfortunately, are going to fall further behind. Now, when you get to the sort of extreme levels of wealth inequality that we're seeing in, in a lot of developed countries, I'll just tell you, it doesn't ever end well, right? And, and there will be some sort of redistributive measures put in place to try to rebalance that. I mean, that is coming. Uh, and so I agree with you 100%. You are seeing, I, I completely sympathize with what you guys are saying. You're seeing, you know, people who own the assets are already being vilified. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Like, I wouldn't be shocked at all if we saw, you know, things like... Um, more estate taxes. Um, you know, I, I don't, I know there's a lot of people that are concerned about principal residence wealth tax. Everyone's I, I really concerned think, about that one, Ben. Everyone's yeah, listen, concerned I think about that's that a non-starter. Look, man, that's political suicide. Like you got to know like what's, what's reasonable and what's not on the policy front. And you just have to be a political idiot to try to pull that off in Canada. It's very unpopular. Now what I could see, and, and I'll, I'll say that First of all, because I think this is an election year, like I wouldn't be surprised if we saw an election called and for, you know, end up having one in the fall. Um, there's no way the liberals are going to do anything this year to try to curb things. Because as we just said, this is a fragile recovery. Uh, housing is the economy. They're just not going to do that. But I will say if you give them a majority or you give any party a majority after this election, all bets are off. Like I, I do think that, that there is an appetite there to try to address some of the wealth inequality. Now, the good news is if you're the person they're targeting, congratulations, you're probably in the top 10% of wealth. Earned. And it's like, you know, it's one of those kind of first world problem issues. Um, but I, I hear what you're saying. It's you're going to go through a period, I suspect, in the next 10 or 20 years where there will be very concerted efforts to redistribute that wealth. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. Right. I'm fortunate enough to probably be in the group that would uh, that would be getting, you know, wealth confiscated and redistributed. But uh Again, it gets back to what you said. It's just the, those are the kind of the rules of the game. You don't have to like it, but that's that's kind of probably where we're going. Yeah, I like a strong middle class and a strong. I want my neighbor to do well. So yeah, I kind of yeah, yeah it's tough. Let, let me tell you something. Let me let me tell you what concerns me. So um, the problem we have in Canada is it's a strange situation. We've underinvested in single family housing. Okay. But we've massively overinvested in housing as an asset class relative to, let's say, business investment. Okay, and I'll give you the craziest stat that, that perfectly encapsulates this. In Canada right now, if you take research and development, 
from all companies across the country. You put research and development expenditures in one bucket and you put real estate transaction expenditures in the other. Oh my so God. Just, I'm, I'm scared just, to what I'm about to hear. Okay. Yeah, no, this is, this is going to blow your mind. So that's primarily realtor commissions, right? But it's also, you know, your legals and your tax, whatever, right? So just buying and selling residential real estate, the expenditures associated with that are three times larger than all research and development expenditures from all businesses across the country. Okay. Now, when you instead back up and you look at all investment from all businesses, all governments, all households, you put all investments in one bucket, and then you look at, well, what share of those investments is just residential properties? It's about 40%. Okay. So that doesn't mean anything on its own. But when you look at the last 20 years and you look at all OECD countries, there have only been three examples of countries that have ever gotten that high. You've got Greece, Ireland, and Spain in the mid 2000s. Okay. Now, Anybody who hears and leave those us on three, a positive. Leave us on a positive. <laughs> well, just hold on, just hold on, hold on, just hold on. I'm just telling you where I'm going with this. You look at those three and what happened. It's not a good outcome. And what I'm saying, my point, my point here is this: we need to see more investment in Canada in things that enhance productivity, right? So you could make the argument that we are underinvesting in those productivity enhancing, you know, and that's longer term. That concerns me, right? And and it gets back to your point because you're, you're talking about how we want to have a thriving middle class. Like that's really how we're going to have to do it. And there will be policies coming that are going to try to sort of squeeze the investment out of the residential side and into the business side, or squeeze, not the right word, but incentivize, right? And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but that, that needs to be where we, we end up. Um, so, you know, longer term, we need to have the business growth, the productivity growth to sustain prices at these levels, right? Over longer term completely gutting the economy and ending up with the system, as you guys said, where it's like the, the housing owners are, are the wealthy ones and anyone that's trying to work for a living are the you know, incredibly poor. That's just not a healthy dynamic for the economy. So, but I'm with you guys in the near term. I think you're absolutely right. The, the way that the system is set up absolutely favors asset owners. Um, it's probably going to be a few more years that we see that at some point governments are going to you know, get bold enough to try to try to do something to rebalance that. We, you know what, and ben, I think we, we agree with you too. Like, one thing that I hoped came from this whole COVID thing, I'm like, you know what, if there's going to be a positive to this, I hope that people understand that the, the way the supply chains are working, where things are so centralized and all our stuff comes from one area, and it really impacts our economy because we don't actually create, but there's no productivity going on. There's, but their manufacturing has been decimated in this country versus what it is. We take our raw materials, we sell them to foreign places, and then we we buy back finished goods at a premium. Like it just seems it's the craziest system that we have set up. Our energy so, sector, every sector. Yeah, but I yeah. so like, but I, you. Yeah, I, I hope I hope you're right. I guess what I'm saying is I hope you're right in that thing. I think you at this point now with what's happened in the last year and the way the governments have responded. To, I'm not talking about the COVID lockdown policies. I just mean the economic side of things. I've lost more faith that they actually are going to do that because it's not a sexy message to give people because no one really looks at the long term and they, if they need to get elected like you said this year or the next election they just need to do something now for people to see an impact now you know but i hope you're right because i i, I think tom i think you probably agree too that to us is the key yeah. of what we need to to get a strong country again and a strong economy that can support these real estate prices or who cares what the real estate prices are just everything else. Right. So yeah. Well, I think ben, we're, ben we're we always joke mind. that Nick and I don't exist without Canada. Our parents came to this country as immigrants here because of what this country represented. 
And we are born because, uh, you know, uh, someone from Scotland and someone from Croatia came here and had children. They would have never met without Canada, right? without this country. So I personally want a thriving area. And, you know, these last decade has made me just scratch my head so much. But Ben, I'll tell you something, Nick, hearing Ben speak, I've decided that Ben needs to get into politics. So Ben, oh God, with your, with your understanding of what's going on, yeah. just hearing you speak in the last five minutes, I'm like, you know what? We need Ben in oh, Ottawa. Man. So we'll, Ben, we'll, we'll, we'll whenever we're, you we're, decide I, to throw your hat in the ring into <laughs> politics, the rock star marketing arm will be at your service. So you I should know that. It, guys. You, should, okay. you should know that. That ever crosses your mind. We need people like you oh, in Ottawa. So if that ever happens in your life, you please let us know. That's and we funny. will be supporting you. So uh, I appreciate anyway. I appreciate that, guys. I don't think I'll be taking you up on that anytime <laughs> soon, but I appreciate the vote of confidence. Yeah, no, just the way you articulate the, the you know everything that you are sharing here, it's so well done, Ben. Like seriously. I know you're very active on Twitter, sharing message. I think these data points, I think the average Canadian is so busy making their rent pay, make, pay, payment, sorry, their mortgage payment, you know, raising a family. They may not have time to look at some of the information that you specifically are sharing, but this is the information I feel all Canadians need to understand. And you're playing a huge role in, you know, sharing that stuff. And I know you're doing it with institutional level and now kind of to the real estate community with your new offering that I want you to talk about. And just to every Canadian through Twitter, you're sharing so much good information. So you're serving all of us, Ben. So thank you for everything you're that. doing. Thanks. Yeah. And I'd say to you guys, thanks so much for the support. I mean, I, you guys kind of came out of nowhere and were huge. Uh, I mean, hugely influential. Like I didn't, we didn't know each other more than a few months, but, but I sent you guys some of my stuff and you guys were super uh, central and kind of encouraging me to, to try to launch this, this new product. So thanks for asking about it. I, I'd love to just give a quick yes, mention please here. Do. Yeah. So um, the business I have right now is North Cove Advisors. That's my institutional uh, research arm. And what we're trying to do is take some of that research, distill it down and make it available to um, real estate professionals. And what we're looking for are kind of top real estate professionals who appreciate the value of kind of top-notch institutional quality information that will help them stand apart from their competitors, right? And so the new company is called Edge Realty Analytics. So you can look up edgeanalytics.ca. And it's a, a, a research subscription service that's exclusively available to, to people in the real estate space. So mortgage brokers, realtors, developers, uh, appraisers, you know, city planners, those types. And what we're providing is um, the research itself, which you folks have seen and, and you guys know what we offer, but then also we're, we've got a, a graphics design team that creates, it takes some of the key concepts that we kind of identify and then turns them into these great infographics that are then shareable with your um, clients, your prospects, take some of these, these key informations, distills it down into a really neat shareable uh, neat little format. And that's available to subscribers as well. Now, what I'm most excited about though, is with each research report that goes out, there's a, a quick survey that's attached to it. We, we're gathering baseline information from various um, you know, real estate industry groups. And, uh, and that information is, is sort of aggregated and uh, is made available to subscribers through this neat little inter in interactive uh, interface where they can look at, you know, well, what are realtors in BC saying about their price expectations for the next year? What are mortgage brokers in Ontario saying about financing conditions, right? 
Now that's not available yet. I want to be clear on that. We need to build out the network. We need to get gather the information, but that's the, the goal is several months down the road. Once we have that information, we want to make that available to edge analytics subscribers, but also available to my current institutional clients who are you know, excited to have access to that, that information as well. So, uh, so that's where we're going. So you can learn more about that at edgeanalytics.ca. So edgeanalytics.ca for that. And then on Twitter, your Twitter, and, and the reason I share Twitter is you're, you're fairly active on there sharing different information. It's good information. Uh, your Twitter handle is at Ben Rabidou. It's you're just your right. full name, correct? Yep. So right. in the show notes to this episode, if you're listening to this and you're driving or, you know, walking in the park somewhere, we will put Ben's edgeanalytics.ca URL and your Twitter handle so that you can track Ben down. Appreciate um, that. Yeah, really, really appreciate this, Ben. Anything else before we wrap? Just thank you for this. Totally appreciate it. No, I, listen, I'm happy for, I, I'm you know, thankful for the opportunity to chat with you guys. And uh, it's always great to, to kind of chat with, with, with guys and kind of bounce ideas off each other. It's, it's fun to talk to people that sometimes you have the same opinion with. Sometimes it's good to kind of butt heads and try to, you know, find, oh, out, totally. find out where you disagree. Where we're wrong. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, I, I think that's a big part of being in this, the, the research and, and what you guys are doing as well is trying to seek out people that might challenge your worldviews. Right. And, uh, and uh, I find that very beneficial to, you know, as with anything else, I'm, I'm wrong at least as often as I'm right. So it's good to you know, talk to people who can help shape my thinking. Totally. So I appreciate you guys same, for that. Yeah. And thank you. It's two way street. We appreciate that. And we share with everyone, Hey, we could be totally wrong on our thinking as well. Do your own due diligence, 100%. research, get curious, dig into sure. things. Don't trust two Mississauga boys who you just like, who you're thinking, who are these guys that, so yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Ben, you bring a lot of uh, clarity to, to, to the noise here. And I didn't ask, I'm hoping you're a Leafs fan. I, I don't know if we let on another. Oh, don't man. tell me you're like a Calgary. No, Winnipeg. Who's your team? You know what? I is it listen, at least man, a Canadian. Pull for, is it at least yeah, a Canadian? Totally. Team? Yeah, oh, totally. Okay. I mean, I'm look, man. I, I hate to say it. I am pulling for the Leafs. I I hate to say that after the a ridiculous loss on a two on zero in overtime. Oh. I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> Uh, but you know, I, I also think I yeah, turned off the TV immediately. I didn't even watch the replay. It's been I think painful, it was, man. Cause I also, you know, I, I was really hoping that, that Edmonton would run deep. They're just such an exciting team. I mean, McDavid's just, you got it. I don't know. I don't know how you, you don't like watching them, but Winnipeg's looks awesome. So good, good for them. Okay, but you're hedging you're, your bets. Okay. You're hedging. Your no, bets. listen, I was hoping for a better series is all it was, right. It ended up being a blowout Toronto. At least it's a good series, but it's just, it's like classic. I feel for Edmonton. I feel for Edmonton totally. right now. I, I totally. want McDavid to be on a playoff contender here i feel for them yeah do you guys think he's going to stick around i think he will because i think he's that loyal canadian kid yeah who's yeah. gonna just stick around and and Man, it's that's... not like they're a terrible team like it's not like no. in, in buffalo how it, you know it's just been a terrible team they've actually been a good team they just couldn't they can't seem to pull it off in the playoffs except they did have a, a little bit of a run i was a few years a couple years ago now yeah. you know so I, I i feel because of that he'll end up sticking around but i i, I don't know yeah, that's a tough one. So you guys are Leafs fans? Tom oh, more geez. than me. I'm, I'm, oh, a real, I'm, a, I'm a realist. Tom's the, Tom's ben, the stereotypical. Ben, I get on the band. I'm, I, every year we're winning the Stanley Cup, Ben. Every year I convince myself that this is the year. So, yeah, I'm a diehard Leafs fan. <laughs> So that's amazing. You're like the central banker of fans. You just like you just, you hold this mirage up there of what the world's really like. Totally. <laughs> totally. Oh, now that I see I like that, that. Friend, I. 
I seeing like that, that frame of reference, I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Anyway, but okay, we'll we'll let, we've hogged you for too long. Ben, thank you so much for this. Totally, totally appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure, guys. Great chatting. Hey everyone, so hopefully you enjoyed that chat with Ben. His Twitter handle is at Ben Rabidou. That is at B-E-N-R-A-B-I-D-O-U-X. That's linked on the show notes of this particular episode. And you can get access to his real estate data at edgeanalytics.ca. That's edgeanalytics.ca. And if you are listening to this and you want to check out some of our YouTube information, you could go to our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash rockstar inner circle. Hit the big fat subscribe button. You'll get all our videos. That's youtube.com forward slash rockstar inner circle. That's it for this particular episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.